Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're investigating the assassination of Sir Henry Wilson and how it helped trigger the Irish Civil War. Then later in the show, we'll be finding out about the most powerful woman in Europe in the 18th century, the Austrian Empress Maria Theresa. And we'll be discovering how the reality of her life was very different from the idealised image presented to the public. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we investigated the history of the CIA on this, the 75th anniversary of its founding, and also heard about the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s and its impact on Ireland and Western Europe. If you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the life and death of Sir Henry Wilson. On the 22nd of June 1922, Sir Henry Wilson, the former head of the British Army, was shot and killed by two IRA men in what was the most significant political murder to have taken place on British soil for more than a century. The assassination triggered the Irish Civil War, which cast the darkest of shadows over the new Irish state. And a new book explores who ordered the killing and why, and sheds light on a moment that changed the course of Irish and British history forever. The book is called Great Hatred, The Assassination of Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson, MP. It's published in paperback by Faber. The author is Ronan McGreevy. And Ronan, you're very welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Patrick. Well, the book reads like a thriller. Mm. So I wonder what inspires you to tell this story and explore, I suppose, the different layers uh, that had to be uncovered with uh, the life and death of Henry Wilson. Well, Patrick, I came to this story to a process of serendipity. My previous book, Wherever the Firing Line Extends, Ireland and the Western Front, the final chapter uh, is about a guy named uh, Robert Armstrong, who was a First World War veteran who became a gardener uh, with the Imperial War Graves Commission or the Commonwealth War Graves Commission after the First World War. But during the Second World War, he used his status as a, as a gardener to... Um, uh, to work with the French on a resistance and he was captured by the Germans and sentenced to death. That sentence was commuted uh, to life imprisonment but he died in a German uh, prisoner of war camp in 1944. The reason that I, I, I mention that is because he grew up on the Corrigan estate. His father, James Armstrong, was the... Um, was the chief supervisor on the estate for the Wilson family. So once I had written that book and I had written about the Henry Wilson story and about the fact that his family home, Curry Grain, was burned to the ground during the Civil War, I thought, I really should revisit this story. I mean, I knew it vaguely, who doesn't? like? But um, And the, what motivated me more than anything else was two things. One is I know Longford very well. I went to school there. Uh, St. Mel's College in Longford, but also I know London very well. I spent nine years there and there was that London, London Longford connection. But also uh, I'm very interested in the whole idea of Irish identity 
And, you know, I have some of my best friends are London Irish, my family's London Irish, etc. So I was interested in that aspect because uh, the two guys who killed Henry Wilson, Reginald Dawn and Joseph O'Sullivan were not Irish born, they were actually London Irish. And it's fascinating, whereas Wilson, as you show, was a, an Irish-born British imperialist. Yes. So remind our listeners, who was Wilson, his role in the First World War, and why was he such a hate figure to Irish nationalists? Well, as Wilson, as you say, um, was Irish. He was born in uh, he was born in Ireland in 1864. Um, he, he was from an Anglo-Irish family. The family seat was in Currygray in County Longford. And he um, he did what a lot of Anglo-Irish uh, boys did at the time. He joined the British Army. He rose up to the ranks uh, through both ability and uh, ability to intrigue and find himself on the right side of the right people um, to become in uh, February 1918 the chief of the Imperial General Staff, which is the which is the professional head of the British Army. So it's. It's it's the top military advisor role to the British Army. So he would have been attending cabinet. He would have been uh, probably uh, David Lloyd George, most important uh, military advisor, etc. So I mean, there's all of that. So when the war ends, he's he's hailed as one of the men that won the war because he was one of the instigators of the uh, Supreme Allied Command, which uh, under his good friend Ferdinand Foch. So uh, basically, the the British. The British Commonwealth, um, French and American forces coordinated their actions in the final stages of the First World War to win the war. So after after the war, he is faced with a huge array of problems, the demobilisation of the British Army and the fact that the British Empire is now as big as that it's ever been. They inherit a lot of mandates, as we know, the most famous one being Palestine, Palestine. Uh, the other one being um, the Mesopotamia, which became Iraq, etc. So he has all of those problems. On top of that, he's also a militant uh, uh, Irish unionist, even though he's from a southern background. He uh, doesn't regard uh, nationalist uh, the the uh, home rule or the the quest for Irish independence as a legitimate aspiration. He doesn't believe the Irish have. The ability to rule themselves. So his his time as uh, SIG's chief of the Imperial General Staff is over in February 1922, and within three days he's elected unopposed as a, a unionist MP for the North Down constituency. A month later he is appointed as the chief military advisor to the to the Northern Ireland government. So it's in that context that he's targeted in 1922. So then that brings us to that fateful day of the assassination. Uh, talk to us about what happened on that day. Well, if I, if I might go back to the night before, actually, um, there is a meeting of members of the IRA in uh, Mooney's Pub in Holborn, uh, which was a pub frequented by the Irish at that time. Um, there's obviously, you know, there's a lot of um, tension within the IRA in London as there is tension in Dublin. Uh, between those who support the treaty and those who don't support the treaty. But uh, in walks somebody, we don't know exactly who it was, with a copy of the Evening News and in uh, a little uh, single paragraph, news and brief as we call them in journalism, there is a notice that the following day uh, Sir Henry Wilson is going to unveil uh, a memorial to the dead of the Great War at Liverpool Street Station. So Donald Sullivan are there along with uh, Sam Maguire, um, who was sort of the, the head of the IRB in London at the time. And they say, they agree that they will try and take this opportunity to shoot Wilson. 
Um, they go to uh, Liverpool Street Station late that night uh, to do a recce. They realise that trying to kill him in front of hundreds of assembled guests uh, would be impossible. So they decide instead that they're going to wait for him at his home. So uh, the following day dawns and uh, Wilson goes to Liverpool Street Station amidst great fanfare and so on. He unveils the memorial to the uh, men of the uh, Great Eastern Railway Company who died in the war and then he's he has to go back home to change his clothes. He's, he's wearing a field marshal's uniform at the time so he needs to change because he needs to go into the House of Commons for a debate. And Dunn and O'Sullivan are waiting for him at the doorsteps of his home at 36 Eaton Place and they shoot him six times and he's, he's, he's dead on the spot. So that's the uh, that's the assassination story. Dunn and O'Sullivan uh, were quickly apprehended. O'Sullivan actually only had one leg, uh, and Dunn had been a wounded veteran of the First World War as well. So their chances of getting away were very slim. As to uh, the the burning question of who ordered the assassination, well, who would want Wilson dead? I think is is the is the question. And there were many in within Nationalist Ireland, even. Bear in mind this is after the treaty is signed in December 1921, which is supposed to end all hostilities between Britain and Ireland. But um, Wilson is uh, regarded as a prime mover in what was known as the Belfast Programs at that time, even though they've been going on since 1920, but they, they reach a new crescendo of violence in 1922. The uh, He is associated with the Special Powers Act, which is the the, 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 the act that gives the, the, the Northern government... Um, the powers to intern um, uh, people without trial, which they used then and they used in 1971 uh, during the internment. So um, Wilson is associated with the worst excesses of the sort of B-specials, as they were at the time, targeting Catholic civilians. He's also um, erroneously, as it turns out, associated with a, a, an infamous incident, which is largely forgotten about at, at Pettigo and uh, Belique in early June 1922, when... The British Army is called in. Uh, the Irish pro and anti-treaty forces have have uh, taken over part of the villages of Balik and and part Pettigo, which are on the uh, Northern Ireland side of the divide. And he's blamed for that. There was overkill on the part of the British. They shelled uh, uh, the Irish uh, garrison there and killed eight people. One person who uh, really, really despised um, Wilson was uh, Michael Collins. So um, I mean, I guess. The, the the key question that has been over the last hundred years is, was Michael Collins involved in the shooting of Henry Wilson? And there's also an extraordinary aftermath to it where there are various attempts to rescue Don and O'Sullivan or perhaps kidnap someone uh, high profile like the Prince of Wales and perhaps uh, trade him off. Well, this is the interesting thing. I mean, the, the Irish Republicans had... Um, had a very, very good track record of springing uh, Republican prisoners from jail. Um, the most famous example, of course, being Eamon de Valera in February 1919 when he sprang from Lincoln Jail, which is a famous incident. But there's also other incidents like at Strangeways Prison and uh, obviously in Mountjoy, the Curra, etc. Um, they, they, they happen to be very, very good at, 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 at that. The problem with Don and O'Sullivan is that, this, that they are captured post the truce of uh, July 1921 so the IRA is really degraded and not having uh, been operating for over a year and uh, um, they're the most infamous prisoners in Britain at the time Don and O'Sullivan and they're being kept in Brixton prison 
And uh, but nevertheless, uh, Michael Collins um, sends um, uh, his some of his his best men to try and rescue them. At the same time, Liam Lynch, who's the leader of the anti-treaty side, sends some of his men to rescue them. So there's um, both sides <laughs> uh, who are already involved in the civil war, but they both agree that they're going to try and rescue Donan O'Sullivan. They put 60 men on the case. Those 60 men are loitering around Brixton Prison. But unfortunately, the uh, authorities are on to them. Uh, they know uh, that they're trying to capture Donald O'Sullivan. So the movements of Donald O'Sullivan to to uh, uh, court and then to Wanzer Prison are kept under very close guard. So then they begin to realise that there's no possibility that they can be rescued from jail. So Dennis Kelleher, who's the head of the IRA, is taken over from Reggie Dunn as the head of the IRA, decides that instead of... Um, uh, instead of uh, trying to rescue them, they, they will try and, and, and uh, kidnap a, a well-known personage in the British establishment, uh, hold him capture and hope hope that their sentence of Donald Sullivan will be commuted. So um, essentially what they decide that they're going to pick up the Prince of Wales, who is the uh, uh, Prince, uh, Prince uh, who is the future uh, Edward VIII, as we know, is famous for his abdication in 1936. Um they knew that every summer in July, the um, Prince of Wales went to the Cows Regatta. So uh, two men, um, and uh, uh, Dennis Kelleher, one of them being uh, John Joseph Carr, who was uh, another London Irish guy involved in the IRA, decided to go to Cows to look for uh, the Prince of Wales with a view to capturing him. Um, unfortunately uh, for Dennis Kelleher, um, they're stopped by police and they immediately recognise his accent, so they call off the raid. But in any case, it wouldn't have mattered because the Prince of Wales uh, wasn't actually in cows for once in his life. He was actually uh, at the uh, playing polo in the in the in the Midlands of England. So um, that didn't work either. And then they 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 thought about capturing the Earl of Arran, who was a sort of minor peer figure at the time of Anglo-Irish descent. Again, they couldn't find him. And uh, so that left them really with nothing other than the legal side to go down. So their solicitor um, tried started a petition which was for the reprieve, which uh, got 45,000 uh, signatures. They also had a number of high-profile people advocating on their behalf, including George Bernard Shaw, but none of it worked. So they were hanged on the 10th of August uh, 1922 at Wandsworth Jail. And, you know, you have a very powerful description of what happens in terms of, well, ha- what happens in the aftermath of the assassination, describing this as Ireland Sarajevo, because the civil war breaks out a few days later. There's demands uh, put on uh, the, the free state side to to remove the insurgents from the four courts. And it really is the, the starting shot, the firing shots on the Irish civil war. Yeah, well, I, 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 I make that analogy, you know, obviously your listeners will know the story of Sarajevo where the Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated in June 1914. The Austrian government issue an ultimatum to Serbia um, and that unlocks the sort of alliances that are around in Europe at the time. So Germany backs up Austria, Russia backs up Serbia. So within 37 days, the whole war world is involved in a the most catastrophic conflict at the time. So it's analogous in the sense that the Wilson shooting, right, leads to an ultimatum from the British government to the provisional Irish government to deal with the four court rebels. Um, so six days after this ultimate, after the Wilson shooting, the the um, 
the provisional government uh, using borrowed uh, British artillery opens up on the four courts. It's my contention in the book that the civil war would not have happened without the Wilson shooting. Uh, and when I say the civil war, I mean the civil war that happened. You can directly trace the outbreak of the civil war to the Wilson shooting and the British ultimatum. The question is, I guess, whether another civil war would have broken out at a different date. And uh, again, I contend that there's no guarantee that it would have happened Um uh, neither side had made any preparation for taking on the other. If they had done, the anti-treaty side, which had theoretical numeral supremacy at the start of the war, would have uh, possibly won the, the civil war. So, I mean, in that sense alone, uh, the, the Wilson shooting is a very pivotal moment in Irish history. Well, it is like a thriller and part of the excitement is reviewing the evidence for who might have given the order and uh, how this assassination came about. But uh, our final question, Ronan, uh, given the time that you spent on this and the archival records you've gone through, are you in any doubt that it was Michael Collins? No, I'm not. And, um, And in fact... I've been strengthened in that belief since the book was published. I've come across further evidence that backs up my case. Um, to go back to Michael Collins, um, Michael Collins despised Henry Wilson. He described him as a violent orange partisan. He held him personally responsible for the pogroms against the Catholics in the North, even though, as I point out in the book, Wilson was not responsible for the pogroms in the North. In fact, his uh, his advice to the Northern government, partisan as it was, was to try and, and stop sectarian conflict. So, I mean, I think it's important to be fair to Wilson in that regard. But the perception of Wilson at the time and the speeches that he was making also uh, included uh, wild speeches talking about the British government going back into the south of Ireland and reconquering it and restoring order, as he put it. He believed that um, the Irish couldn't uh, run, run their own affairs. And this is even after the the treaty is signed. So, uh, so Wilson is the biggest opponent of the treaty that there is, uh, not just in, in Ireland, but in Britain as well. He's a thorn in the flesh of the British government. He has already irrevocably fallen out with the British government over their policy in Ireland. So there are three reasons why um, uh, Collins would want, uh, maybe four will, reasons why he would want them dead. The first is, as explained, he he holds uh Wilson responsible for the northern programs. Second, Wilson is making these bellicose noises about reinvading the south and he is actually a figure who is very influential on the part of the sort of diehards, the sort of conservative right wing at that stage under Andrew Bonner Law who are very sceptical about the... um, about the uh, 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 the treaty settlement. Thirdly, uh, Wilson is held responsible by uh, Collins for the uh, overkill at Petico and and Belique. And again, Wilson had nothing to do with this. This was all down to Churchill. And the fourth reason is that because I think Collins had designs on um, raising the national army, settling the civil war, and uh, and marching on the north. And I mean, we know, for instance, that in in May and June. Uh, of um, uh, 1922, there was an abortive um, uh, IRA offensive in in the north, uh, you know, which Collins was involved in um, to try and destabilise the northern government. So um, Collins would have seen Wilson as as the biggest foe of Irish nationalism that was around in 1922. So that's the reason for it. no, I guess the opportunity. Why? How? How did this this shooting come about? Well, 
Um, it's my belief putting putting forward uh, putting forward all the uh, evidence that I can find that um, the order to assassinate uh, Wilson was conveyed by a courier from Collins's office to London. Uh, that courier met Liam Tobin um, in in London, and Liam Tobin conveyed the message to Sam Maguire, who was the head of the Irish. Uh, uh, Republican Brotherhood who in turn conveyed that message to Reggie Dunn who was at that time the uh, the officer commanding the IRA in London. Um, again, like I have a lot of evidence in my book to back that up. So, I mean, I think you'll need to read my book to, 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 to find the evidence but I do believe that Collins was ultimately responsible for this shooting. Well, it's a fascinating story and it's told so brilliantly in the book. It's called Great Hatred, the Assassination of Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson, MP. It's published in paperback by Faber. The author is Ronan McGreevy. And Ronan, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick, very much. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Maria Theresa was once the most powerful woman in Europe. At the age of 23, she ascended to the throne of the Habsburg Empire, a far-flung realm composed of diverse ethnicities and languages, beset on all sides by enemies and rivals. And a new book provides the definitive biography of Maria Theresa, situating this exceptional empress within her time while dispelling the myths surrounding her. The book is called Maria Theresa, the Habsburg Empress in Her Time. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press. And I'm delighted to welcome the author, Barbara Stahlberg, Rillinger to the show tonight. Barbara, you're very welcome. Hello. Thanks a million for joining us. Can we begin with uh, something you say in your introduction to the book? You describe the life of Maria Theresa, this 18th century uh, Austrian empress, as a fairy tale. Can you tell us about the fairy tale and perhaps why it's been seen as a fairy tale for so long? Um, Yeah, the the story of uh, her, the, the beginning of her reign, has a kind of fairy tale plot because she uh, was a young woman, uh, a, a beautiful young woman, as her contemporaries would uh, would say, and she was uh, completely unexperienced. And as soon as she had ascended to the throne, a couple of enemies or a couple of neighbors um, uh, um, um, tried to distribute her lands among them. And uh, she, nobody would have expected her to defend uh, her father's uh, realm. So it was extremely surprising, and and uh, of course, uh, already contemporaries were uh, admired her for this. And she was able to to do so because of the uh, support of the Hungarian nobility. Uh, and so the story could be told as. Uh, the story of the innocent young woman who, uh, with 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 a baby on her arm, appealed to the wild uh, warriors of Hungary to help her, and so uh, she uh, she she um, was successful. And in the end, she after the after she had uh, waged war for eight years to defend her uh, her lands, uh, she was uh, she started to reform. Her, um, her countries in a very fundamental way and uh, as historians uh, would put it, was very successful in this. And she, in a way, or she was said to create uh, a modern state. And so this is kind of 
yeah, this is tough for a fairy tale in, in several respects. And you describe the, it's very interesting, the gender issues, these male fantasies that certain men like to look at Maria Teresa because they were able to maybe point to her as the exception that proves the rule, that she was different from other women and they were able to almost project their own fantasies and beliefs onto her. Yes, 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 of course. I mean, she turned upside down the gender roles of the time and even more of the 19th century. And it's interesting to see uh, the way the, this, this uh, Austrian war succession was depicted in the first place by contemporaries, namely as a rape. Uh, the uh, several, I mean, would kind of, you would call it a kind of Me Too story today. Uh, all the, the, the neighboring um, princes would um, try to, to, uh, to rape her. And so it was depicted in, in uh, broadsheets at the time. But when she was successful in defending her countries, this turned upside down and, and she was depicted as the one who put on the, the, the breaches of, the, uh, of her neighboring princess. Yeah, she puts on the breaches. So, uh, she, she turned upside down the generals uh, because she was the one who, um, who, who yeah, had the... I mean, she did not really defend the whole country. She, she actually lost one of her territories, but uh, in the end, she, she defended her reign. And so, but she also turned upside down gender roles in her marriage, of course, because she was the female heir of her father's uh, land, of the huge Habsburg Empire, which was, of course, uh, um, an exception to the rule. And she took the uh, task of rule extremely seriously, uh, much more seriously than most of her male colleagues would do. Um, and uh, she also, I mean, some of the, her male uh, contemporaries um, uh, criticized her husband for not dominating her, for not taking uh, the rule in his own hands. But uh, until she surprised everyone that she herself, as the female heir, really uh, um, uh, took up the the, um, the the business of of rule, and uh, I, I, one could say a lot about uh, the the way she coped with this specific situation, and the Hufflepuff court coped with with that, because uh, female rule was course was seen as a kind of defect um, and it had to be um, compensated and there were several ways how uh, she compensated this defect uh, opposite ways to cope with that for example first of all she was crowned king and not queen of Hungary and of Bohemia um, her most important land so and that was uh, on purpose, because um, I mean, she, she in the ritual of coronation, she uh, practiced everything as uh, a male heir would would do, and that was absolutely um, exceptional. And that was that was a, a very um, um, deliberate in, uh, staging of her uh, of her rule as a kind of male rule, and she, she even said that she changed her sex in order to become king of 
of Bohemia and Hungary. So that was a way to 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 um to to play with with gender roles and to or to um abstract from her female body in order to ascribe to her a male competence to rule. And on the other hand, she also staged her uh, in a way in a contra- in contrary to this, she staged her femininity and her fecundity and uh, had herself presented as a matriarch with, I mean, she had 16 kids, uh, 10 of whom uh, uh, got adult. So she, she uh, presented herself and depicted herself as an extremely female person. So um, these two, um, I mean, this is a very ambivalent way to cope with the situation, this exceptional situation. And it's interesting to see how she, in various situations, um, has succeeded in uh, playing with, with gender roles. Let's look at her life and time. She was born in 1717. Her father, Charles VI, died in 1740 and then she she succeeded him. And then she, she ruled for a full 40 years until her death in 1780. Like that was quite an extraordinary length of time to be, to, to, to be the ruler. Yes, yes. And she really shaped uh, European politics in, this, uh, in these four decades, I would say. And Europe would have uh, looked differently if she ha- hadn't been uh, a Habsburg ruler. Um, and what what interested me most was uh, how the the ambivalence of this period. Uh, I mean, uh, the, in these four decades, uh, there were so many fundamental changes. I mean, it, it, it is a very ambivalent period between, on the one hand, very baroque. She was a very religious person. It was still uh, the the age of late Baroque culture. And on the other hand, it was already um, the the period of enlightenment, of course. And uh, as ambivalent as the period is, um, uh, as ambivalent is her uh, her character and her attitude. She was also uh, partly, you could say, pre-modern, partly modern in her in her way of, of ruling. And this is what makes her uh, so interesting. And uh, this is also the reason why her biography can be used as a key to the whole age, uh, uh, of the, the, the whole 18th century. And I try to describe through the person uh, the whole period. And it's interesting about how she was then idealized as a as a an enlightenment monarch and this enlightened figure who uh, was a reformer and the mother of her lands, whereas in fact she had you know she despised the ideas of the enlightenment and she uh, wasn't tolerant when it came to different religions, especially when it mm-hmm. came to Protestants and Jews. So uh, it's interesting to contrast the reality from the the mythology. Yes. Yes, I mean, there are a lot of myths about uh, her person, uh, one of uh, which being um, the image of, uh, yeah, not, not really a very tolerant person, but uh, of, a, of a merciful, uh, and, and, and yeah, of a merciful person, which is not true. And the fact that she expelled all the Jews from Prague, uh, and it was the biggest Jewish community in Europe at the time, 
um, and she expelled them in the middle of winter, and many of them had to die uh, because of the cold. Um, so this this uh, this this fact is often ignored in uh, in history in the historiography about her, uh, as is the fact that she uh, prosecuted the Protestants uh, in an extremely merciless way. But there are a lot of other um, parts of this myth. Uh, one of which is the, the myth of her as being um, bourgeois um, woman of a, of a kind of bourgeois family household, which is absolutely um, misleading. And uh, my favorite uh, um, symbol or, or yeah, uh, sign for this is the fact that in the 19th century, there was a legend that once Maria Theresia, uh, promenading through her park in Schönbrunn, met a beggar woman who, uh, whose child, whose, whose uh, newborn child was crying, and Maria Theresia, uh, so goes the legend, uh, breastfed this baby uh, herself. Uh, and this is, of course, completely uh, nonsensical. I mean, she wouldn't have breastfed her own children, um, and, and I mean, uh, she wouldn't have come into contact with her uh, uh, with her subjects in this close way, of course. But the legend shows how she was um, interpreted as, uh, yeah, as a as a as a mother, as a not only mother of the subjects but also mother of her land, in a in a in the way of a uh, of a of a loving mother of the 19th century. And uh, it, it is uh, significant because it shows the anachronistic misunderstanding of, of her person and her behaviour in the 19th century. And what was she like as a mother to her own children? Because you mentioned uh, having 16 children. One of her most famous children, of course, was the uh, uh, later Queen of France, Marie Antoinette. She seems to have had a, a kind of a... a not necessarily maybe a cold relationship, but she definitely saw herself as the ruler of them as well and the controller of their destinies. Yes, yes, yes. This is extremely interesting. I would, today we would maybe say that she was a kind of control freak and she she tried to, or she manipulated her kids and she uh, tried to uh, steer them to uh, pursue her policies or political goals in the various countries where they uh, were located. And Marie, uh, Marie Antoinette was, of course, the most important tool of her policy because she, uh, Marie Antoinette was, uh, as, as um, a wife of the French Dauphin and later French King, she was kind of living pledge uh, to the, the very important alliance with France, uh, anti-Prussian alliance with France. And so that was a huge burden, of course, for Marie Antoinette. And she was she was 15 when she married the Dauphin. And uh, so she was completely uh, overstrained by, by these tasks. And Maria, uh, Maria Theresia was absolutely aware of that. And so she tried to control uh, Marie Antoinette uh, intensely uh, and uh, she she sent her uh, several uh, there were several informants around Marie Antoinette at, at her court to write uh, to, to tell her mother everything she she did and everything that happened in Paris 
And Marie Antoinette wasn't wasn't aware of that. And she, uh, Maria Theresia, always claimed um, to be a, a trustworthy person and a very uh, authentic and and uh, truthful. And so and, and she wasn't. She was not at all. I and mean, she manipulated her, her her all of her children in a in a very um, sophisticated way. And uh, yeah, but on the other hand, of course, she was a loving mother in the sense that she she knew that her kids was were the um, the assets of the dynasty and uh, had to and she needed, of course, uh, as many kids as possible to um, to make sure that the dynasty uh, flourished and and did not. Uh, um, in her case, her, her father hadn't had a, a son, and this led to the disastrous war of Austrian succession. So it was extremely important for her to give birth to as many children as possible in order to avoid such a such a catastrophe uh, from happening again. And what was her relationship like then with her husband? Because you mentioned that there was a kind of an an expectation that perhaps that he would uh, rule and that she would only be, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a secondary position mm-hmm. to him. So was there tension there or how did that resolve itself? Yes. I mean, the, the um, relationship to Francis Stephen was also uh, quite ambivalent um, because on the one hand, um, she, she, as far as one can say, she really loved him. I mean, there are very um, yeah, touching letters from her to him when they were uh, before their marriage. Uh, and she, they uh, slept in the same bed, which was extremely unusual uh, in the princely courts. Usually, uh, um, rulers would not sleep, uh, ruling couples would not sleep in the same room. Um, and uh, the uh, contemporaries commented that and said, uh, they do it like peasants do. So that was absolutely unusual. And she needed uh, her husband as a, as a confidant. And, and uh, yeah, she needed him um, as a, also as an advisor to a certain extent. But uh, on the other hand, she uh, did not leave him any room of of uh, action. So she uh, she also humiliated him in front of others, and uh, so this was these were were um, uh, attitudes or behaviors that were criticized, of course, by uh, contemporaries very very uh, harshly. Because, as I said, the, the gender roles were, were put upside down by in, in this marriage. And but when I think, if one can say this uh, from today's perspective, she loved uh, her husband. She was extremely jealous. She uh, tried to um, control also him, not only her kids but also her husband. Um, and when he died, uh, she was she, she changed her life completely. She never recovered from this uh, event. She she led the life of a widow, and she uh, retired from the court. Uh, she um, became even more religious, even more pious than she had been before. And so um, he really played an important role for her, but she did not leave him any influence on her, her politics. 
and we'll take a quick break now and we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. It's interesting when we get to the later part of her life then, the Austrian Empress Maria Theresa going up to her death in 1780, that there's a sense that she feels out of step. I think there's a description of her. She feels that she was from another century, that it seems that time had moved on and that she felt out of touch with uh, the way the world was going. Yes, yes. She uh, herself felt that she had that her reign was a complete failure. Uh, very, I mean, in, in very sharp contrast to the historians, later historians' uh, um, uh, judgments. And uh, she, because her reforms were not as uh, did not run as she had planned. Uh, and I mean, this is a consequence, of course, of her um, of her control um, of her, her sense of control because. Uh, her her standards were so high that she she was unable to to reach them, and so it was uh, a necessary consequence that she felt uh, her reign was a, was a failure, um, and uh, she she tended to uh, be melancholic, one would today maybe say depressive, um, and this became uh, more and more serious uh, in the, at the end of her life. So uh, it is interesting that her own uh, perception of her of her reign was so completely different uh, to to uh, the perception of, of uh, later generations. And in the end, it is really it was really touching to read in the sources how she um, uh, was obsessively tried to cultivate her death, her dying, as a as a Christian. Um, according to the Christian art of dying. So the way you die is a, a significant... So the art of dying uh, was... Uh, the medieval culture of the art of dying was something that uh, was extremely important for her. And she, uh, in this, at least, she was successful uh, because she died in a very uh, calm and uh, a peaceful way. And it, is, it, it was really touching for me, uh, although I don't have many sympathies for her, it was touching to read how she uh, practiced this art of dying. Given the way you've been able to separate the real Maria Theresa from the, the mythology and the way she was idealized, how would you assess her legacy? Yeah, this is also ambivalent, I would say. I mean, she was a very important figure. And she was, I mean, it depends which standards you, you have. I mean, if, you, if you measure her to the standards of her own time or to the, the standards of later uh, historiography, um, measured to the standards of her own time, I think she was, uh, she was a successful, a great figure. Uh, she was um, yeah, she was successful in defending her reign and 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 so on. Um, but uh, measured to the standards of our time, um, I would say that she, uh, for example, her reform. I mean, you you would have to uh, to uh, go through the the different uh, parts of her policy. But 
um, if you look at the reforms, for example, today you would not say that she uh, really founded the modern state. She she was not able to uh, really to overcome the structures of uh, um, patronage, for example, and of court culture and so on. She also was not an enlightened um, enlightened monarch. She uh, she wasn't able to cope with the situation of the, the rivalry between her and her son. She was uh, she was ambivalent in her uh, also in her goals um, and so on. So one would uh, assess her quite differently today. But all in all, I would say that she was an important and in some way also a great figure with a with an extremely charismatic. Um, uh, self-presentation and and so on. So yeah, it, it is a very ambivalent uh, um, ambivalent judgment in the end. Oh well, Barbara, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight. The book is called Maria Theresa, the Habsburg Empress in Her Time. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press. The author is Barbara Stahlberg Rillinger. And Barbara, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be debating the life and legacy of Michael Collins on this, the centenary of his death. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night.